1: Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast, Did You Read? My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times Opinion Pages. And this week I'm joined by Libby Purvis, Phil Collins and David Aronovich.
2: London should be the magnet for inventive, entrepreneurial, creative young people from all over the UK. But it is being pimped out to rich foreign buyers, not only from EU nations, which we can't do anything about, but from distant, newly rich countries looking for safe investment in a rocketing property market. Supine government and greedy estate agents have slammed the door on future Dick Whittingtons. The job seeker, the intern or the low paid provincial youth rightly hesitates to attempt a London life. 60% of new build is sold abroad, often off plan, it's a disgrace.
3: John Major has recently intervened in politics in a fashion that's quite unusual for him, on the question of living standards. It wasn't widely noticed that he recently talked about net curtain poverty, and he said there should be a windfall of it on the energy companies, and now he has just said that he worries the Tory party is too socially exclusive. Does this amount to a calculated plan? What is Mr Major actually up to?
4: Malala Yousafzai's book has been banned by the Pakistan Private School Association from their schools. It seems that she simply can't be forgiven for her gender, her celebrity and an absence of patriotism in seeming to criticise her country at all. Some Pakistani opinion formers try and deny that she was a victim of the Taliban in the first place. What does this tell us about the mores of this part of the world? Because sometimes I just feel despair.
1: Libby, let's uh, start with uh, your topic on house prices and London. And I think Boris Johnson had your kind of view in his sights in his Daily Telegraph column a week or so ago. And he began it by saying, bloody foreigners, they're all to blame for London's housing situation. And then he argued with that viewpoint. And he said, actually, the foreigners are bringing in money, they're bringing in investment. They're actually part of the solution to London's housing problems. And what we need to do is not keep foreigners out to just build more homes. You don't agree with that.
2: Well, I am not against foreign people um, from any country in the world coming here and living here and paying taxes here. What enrages me is the fact that this new build, particularly, I mean, it, it applies also to huge palaces and things, you know, for the few um, uh, sort of very rich, but they are being sold off plan abroad by these greedy, sneaky estate agents um, in order to just bring in money. And, and, the, and they're being used as banks. People are simply not living in them. There's masses of empty property there should be massive penalties financial penalties on people buying london property because the capital's really important you know the young need to be able to come in and and mix and be there and be in the middle of it um, the there should be heavy financial penalties unless you are going to live there and pay taxes or you should be absolutely forced to let them let these all these flats there's a whole mass of them down at stratford nearly all being bought by india um, they should be forced to let them at very economic rents to people who actually do want to live in the capital. Because otherwise, we're just getting a generation of Dick Whittington's absolutely squeezed out. And it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, people of my generation, in the 70s, you know, you could rent some rubbish flat with a dodgy gas fire and a criminal landlord right in the middle in Soho or down the King's Road. <laughs> and then people could walk around and be part central time. London. Um, <laughs> and even sort of 20 years ago, it was much easier. Now it's virtually impossible. And I think that's heartbreaking. And the government's attitude, I mean, Osborne says he might do something about it. Will he? Don't know.
1: Philip Collins. I I agree with everything
3: Libby said. I did add that there's always a big argument about the immigration of labour. But the real problem is the immigration of capital without labour attached to it. That's what's the problem in London. All this money flows in. And Boris Johnson's right to the extent that, of course, that has some beneficial effects. But he's also right in his first paragraph saying it has some detrimental effects. And this is one of them. And we're going to get to the point where London cannot be a home for the people who we need to make a city function. If you don't have the people doing the jobs that they can't afford to do then a city can't work. Mm. And what you do is you give yourself an enormous transport problem because you force people further and further and further out and you have to ship them in every day. You end up like Mumbai with people living 40 miles away all having to come in on horribly crowded trains. So we're storing up a different problem for ourselves because we're simply, we've are simply we got these huge lots of flats which are, which are just being sold en masse to hugely wealthy foreign investors, and they're not coming back onto the market.
1: What happened to the key workers, homes for key workers scheme that was introduced by the Labour government, um, Phil? That didn't solve the problem, or it just wasn't enough of that program. It didn't solve the
3: problem. I mean, it was never really going to. I mean, there was there was a huge wrangle about what a key worker is. I mm-hmm. mean, um, why are some people key and others are not? I mean, it's just, ugh, I can't bear to use the word key workers. Um, but it was also a problem with developers. It's very hard in development to get developers to do things which aren't profitable. And when you've got land banks, which are hugely profitable because you've got so much money flowing in. Why would you ever build things with such with those requirements? What happens is they sit on the land forever, and the land value goes up. So you you regulate the market like that, and it almost always has those detrimental effects. The unintended consequences of you get less and less building, and that's a a very serious problem. We're not building any houses,
1: David David Aronovich. I try and provoke you. It's the foreigners' fault.
3: Um, It's our fault
4: because people are only doing, in a sense, what it's rational for them to do under the systems that we construct. I mean, in other words, I don't think it has a moral element, like, say, tax avoidance has a moral element to it about what the duties that you owe. Um, If you can buy up um large sections of London real estate that you know is going to appreciate in value then you would be stupid not to do it and you'll be advised by your tax advisors to do it uh, and so on it's a question of we, we we often have many more powers in this regard or can take on many more powers than, than people actually allow we already have and in America also they have sort of significant things like zoning powers powers about what things can actually be used for and so on uh, planning requirements and so on so to introduce the some of the The sorts of restrictions that uh, Libby and Phil have talked about—it's not actually impossible. The world won't collapse on our head uh, if we do them. Um, We might actually draw down, push down some of the value of some of these properties, which will have some knock-on effects. But the—but overall, the thing that worries me much more uh, than that—and this is where I think uh, uh, both Libby and Phil are absolutely right—which makes this, of course, from your point of view, a dull conversation. (laughs) is that we are pricing out people who we actually need, everyone needs to be in the capital. And you can see this both in, I mean, for, let's take another example, the imprimatur upon councils to sell off valuable council housing that can be sold at a substantial amount of money on the market. This was has been a series of initiatives over the course of the last two or three years to gain councils' money. The net result is that poorer people who would have been in those council houses simply disappear from the areas where they needed to work and Phil's right, they then are then added to the transport problem you have bringing people back in.
3: We, we make this problem Phil even Collins. worse yeah. by then erecting a ring around London that we call the Green Belt and we won't go on to it. Now at some point we're going to have to confront this. It's very expensive to bring brownfield sites in urban areas back into use and there's not enough of them anyway. So we're going to have to build it. Whenever we talk about Greenbelt, people think of the most gorgeous rolling countryside. Loads of it's just a load of scrubland on the edge of Stevenage. It's rubbish and we should we should just build on it.
2: Libby Purvis. I still don't think people should be forced to commute in from Stevenage all the time if they're trying to work in central London, contribute to central London. Let me just tell you one small story about all this brownfield legacy stuff. The Olympic Park. There's a whole lot of flats being built down there. Oh, lovely, new build, fantastic heritage, legacy, all the rest of it. Uh, a friend of mine's daughter went down there the other the day, incredibly excited, aged 30, scraped together deposit, flats, one bedroom, 275,000, that's terrific. When she got there, she found that early priority had been given to some corporate buyers from India and they were all sold.
1: How much can we solve the problem in London by a little bit of brownfield development? Or do we need to do something of the kind that Matthew Paris recommended in his Saturday? column. And he said, you know, we need to think big in lots of ways for the future of Britain. And he said, we need to build on the fens around Cambridge and think about a city of two million there. There are other projects around at the moment of big, new, new town type developments. Is that the kind of ambition that we need to inject into this debate, rather than think about squeezing out foreigners or putting up taxes Don't we have to do the biggest house-building program we have done in the post-war period? We do.
3: We do. And for as long as I can remember, people have said we need to stop London being such a magnet for people. We need to invigorate Manchester as if it needs invigorating. We need to – all the provincial cities need to be better. And all of that's true. And yet – London will always be a magnet for people, and that's a great thing. It's a great incentive. And when I was growing up in Manchester, the thought of going to London was... I had a Dick Whittington idea of it, and it's a wonderful thing.
1: Isn't the best thing for Manchester and Leeds and Cardiff, actually, that... In a way, London is pricing itself out of the UK market. The best thing that will reinvigorate the the rest of the UK.
2: Kathleen Moran was arguing that the other day. She was saying we're going to get all these wonderful, vibrant cities elsewhere. Mm. But a capital city is a capital city. In every country, that is the case. And people need to be able to feel that they could go to London to work, even just for a while. I mean, that's what I did. I moved mm. out. So in, you know.
3: in Britain, we you know, I think more or less uniquely, we combine the cultural capital, the political capital, and the financial capital. Most countries don't do that. They have at least one of those things somewhere else. So in London, we, we are extremely centralised
1: compared even with other very vibrant capital cities. F- final word on this topic to David.
3: It's not just
4: London. I mean, uh, the fact is we have a housing shortage in almost all areas where people would like to live. Um, Where people want to go, there is a housing shortage because overall, no matter where it is, we aren't building the houses uh, for various reasons. And frankly, I've got to the stage whereby I think I will give my vote at the next election, puny, pathetic, localised thing that it is, to whichever party convinces me that they have got a really substantial house build programme that they can can bring into effect.
1: Well, I think the next general election is going to be one of the first general elections for a long time when housing really is at the centre of Uh, political debate. And it will be a subject we will be returning to often in this podcast. But we need to move to our second topic today, which is John Major. Phil Collins, you've introduced this topic for us uh, today. And um, up until now, everyone's view has been that John Major, who was so undermined by his predecessor as Conservative leader, Margaret Thatcher, has been a model of loyalty. To David Cameron, but then now he's made a number of interventions recently and where people are wondering that he's actually on manoeuvres and is trying to remind the Conservative Party of its one nation character and obligations. Do you buy this? Well, I don't think he's on manoeuvres
3: in the sense that I don't think there's anything he wants particularly. So I don't think he has any objective or end in sight. Most people, when they're disloyal, of course, reframe it and say, no, 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 it's the greater loyalty. Uh, If only you would listen to me, then you'll do the right thing and therefore that's the act of greatest loyalty I could pay you. Uh, I think that's what John Major is doing. I think there's a bit of accident and a bit of plan in this as there almost always is. But, of course, it's in our interest watching it from the outside to assume it's all perfectly calibrated and planned. It won't have been. It will be slightly accidental. But he's an experienced enough politician to know that if you go to a press gallery lunch and you start talking about net curtain poverty and a, and a windfall tax on the energy companies, which you then follow up with a series of interviews, that's going to get some attention as a former prime minister.
1: He wasn't shy. He did a lot of TV interviews he lot, after that he, um, he, press gallery yes, lunch.
3: Yes. Yeah. Even if it was loosely worded in the lunch itself, he, he then – absolutely um, embellish what he said in interviews. He's put his finger on something important, which is to say the Conservative Party has been very, very slow to understand that the link between growth and incomes has broken. And it's been very slow to realize what that means, which is that even when you get an aggregate economic recovery, it's very probable the lot of swing voters won't feel it. It will seem fiction to them. And that's what he's getting at.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
3: And his solution of a windfall tax on the energy companies is very hard to put into operation because they don't have, in fact, windfall profits. It's more complicated than that. But the politics of this are irresistible. They yeah. they have to... to Do something. They have to act. They're losing this argument quite badly.
1: Uh, Libby Purvis, can I read you something that Rachel Sylvester wrote in her Tuesday column for The Times? Because it seemed to be more than John Major saying that the Tories just weren't getting the living standards issue. He almost seemed to be saying something about the current uh, leadership. This is what um, uh, Rachel wrote uh, Describing the dignified poor or near poor who do not make a fuss, John Major said, How do I know about these people? Because I grew up with them. The contrast with the current Conservative leader, Rachel wrote, and his rather wealthier circle was all too apparent.
2: Yes, I don't, don't know whether he really meant that. I mean, wrap me in gingham and call me Pollyanna. But I actually don't think that Major is being in any way undermining or spite for anything else. I think he's being an absolute... Critical friend. And uh, Rachel again is bang right that um, uh, Cameron has made a disastrous mistake in allowing the coalition partners, the Lib Dems, to own all the more benign policies, you know, like um, tax and so on. Um, and I think that this has been a mistake. If Cameron had the brains he's born with, he would have been up there, straight away after Major saying this thing, this is an admirable man. I admire my predecessor enormously. What he did in bringing himself from a poorer background you know, into the very top of politics is utterly admirable and we want more people to do this and John Major is you know, he, he should have, upped, I, I don't think he said anything, has he? But I, I mean I, I think that I mean Major is quite right, the Tories must not retreat to the safe space and clutch the Tweed and Kashmir security blanket. Um they really mustn't it's important that they don't but I wish David Cameron had just sort of popped up and said yeah major great right on go John and that that would have had a very useful effect as it is sort of gloomy silence isn't it
4: I think if he's listening to this podcast and I'm sure he is <laughs> um, course, he'll right. do exactly what you said because as soon as you said it I thought yeah well that makes absolutely perfect sense to me um you take ownership Uh, of the debate yourself. You say, of course, well, look, I can't help where I was born and where I was educated, but I sure as hell can help whether or not I identify with people and I try to and I think I do and that's why I think John Major is valuable. I think think you're entirely right. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, how, in a sense, what you get uh, in what Phil was saying is the kind of deep, and long-term socio-economic background to this. Social mobility is another way we describe it, but in fact, actually, social mobility is a. It, is actually a much more complex argument than than we give it credit for being, and it's, it points in different sorts of directions because society moves at different paces at different times, and so quite a lot of the social mobility that we look back on with a certain amount of um, nostalgia of the fifties was actually the way in which society was being restructured at the time. In other words, opportunities for changing class existed. But one of the things that I really think is interesting when we come to the to, to the point that John Major was making about, which is a famous point made by Peter Lample and others about the cohort of privately educated people who run major affairs in this country including the media uh, increasingly, uh, is that this is partially a product of the existing upper middle classes insulating their offspring against downward social mobility. and it's actually almost impossible to do anything in a free society about that. It's actually – you think about how you might frame a policy which would take away the advantage that a private school confers yeah. and it's actually very difficult. That's right. You Phil never, Collins.
3: You never get a policy. i – I've written speeches for politicians about social mobility. You never get anybody wanting to write about bad social mobility, which is downwards. What they want, of course, is simply more room at the top to – to cite the great novel of social mobility. So you have to increase the size of the top, and that's very
2: difficult but to do. I'm telling you something just anecdotally that. University fees having shot up to these astronomical levels and astronomical levels of debt are just starting to do that in some what you might call middle class families. It's not they want their children downwardly mobile, but the children are saying, actually, I quite want to do an apprenticeship. You know, there was a girls' school head the other day was doing one apprenticeship. Actually, I want to work in something with my hands. I want to work in something manual. It's not necessary for people always to move. You know, middle class people always to move into the kind of journalism and politics and law and so on. I think the high University fees. The middle class are very savvy. They're sort of scratching their heads and saying, "Well, actually, darling, you know, you're not actually all that bright. So, so you might have a very, very good career in something more technical, more manual. Be great."
1: David
4: Bronovitch. I, I was involved in a, a kind of uh, Twitter debate the, uh, the other day about just this question of private education and social mobility, and somebody pointed out to me a thing which I'd already known, which i had already seen uh, uh, in terms of anecdote and to a certain extent in terms of statistics. But as you know, private schools have hugely increased their fees way above the levels of inflation in the last few years, partially because they want to... Keep the distance between themselves and the state schools because if there isn't a distance, then in that case, people won't go to private schools. It's but now
3: those people we we're talking about in the first item—well, that's
4: what that's what I was coming on to. But now oh, well, I've done this it. large large amount is—you've <laughs> written about this.
3: No, no, I just yeah. said it. Yeah, no, yes, I
4: said it. It's it's fuel. by the same people who are buying up the London properties to a certain extent, who are who are the people who are sending their kids to British private schools, and they expect to pay top dollar for the absolute top facilities, facilities beyond beyond those that let's say a kind of middle-middle-class person in Britain would normally expect for their children. And these are the standards that the private schools are increasingly going to. So it may be that there's going to be a little bit of dropout of domestic middle class uh, affluence from private schools in the
1: future. we're
2: I mean, such snobs about anything which is to do with craft, anything which is hands-on, Absolutely anything to yeah, do... Yeah. You know, I mean, I always like to cite the example of um, uh, Lord, Lord Linley. He didn't go to university and I've, I've cheered up several middle class parents whose children don't want to go to university. He didn't go to university. He's ended up lecturing at the Smithsonian on furniture design because he started learning to make furniture. You know, we... Uh, downward social mobility doesn't... It, moving out of the white collars Zone in Germany doesn't actually necessarily mean moving down the in people's estimation. The British education such is Ken snobbs. Baker.
1: Ken Baker is trying to fix this with the University
2: Technical Colleges great, yes.
3: and it's
1: really, really great idea. And uh, mentioned again in that Matthew Paris column and a sort of slight frustration, I think, from Matthew Paris that um, Michael Gove isn't focusing enough on this topic. Before we, before we go on to our third and final topic, can I just uh, join the two th- subjects we've discussed so far together? This issue of social mobility... Um, being able to afford a home. Are we going to see a different general election next time? Is, uh, it's often said that economic recovery determines the strength of the economy, determines who wins an election. Is there going to be a different set of issues at the next election where it is much more about these issues of social mobility? You said you would vote, David Aronovich, on the housing policies of the parties. I think
4: some of there. these things will leach into the uh, I- into the general election, and certainly Labour would want them to. But from the con- but from the Conservative point of view, the biggest message that they're going to sell is the idea that the economy is gradually getting better. It's still precarious, and Labour will mess it up if you don't. And that's going to be at least half of the battleground over which everything is fought, which is old-fashioned economic credibility. So don't I don't anticipate an election which completely is fought outside, if you like, the old p- yeah, parameters. The old What's different, really, is the continuing lack of allegiance, the growing lack of allegiance that people have to the major political parties. That's what creates a sort of okay. real difficulty. Uh, Libby, briefly?
2: remember if the sun shines and we win a big football match and people are feeling a little bit richer than they were a year before, it's always, always keep tight, hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. I'm afraid that is probably the Tories' best hope. <laughs>
1: I think it will
3: be more traditional than most people in politics currently think. I think it will be largely about – people don't really believe that politicians are in charge of their living standards. So they will go back to the broader question of economic competence on which the Tories are miles ahead. And the second thing will be leadership. And David Cameron will have to go head-to-head with, with Ed Miliband. So I think it will be – in the end, it will turn out to be a fairly traditional Do you think they'll have a debate, Phil? Do you think they're going to have a TV debate? Yeah, I think they will. I think they can't avoid it. I think they'd like to avoid it, but they can't.
1: Okay, we must move briefly on to our third and uh, final topic. Don't say like that, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> david aronovich i think that, that you've chosen we now a... must move on to
4: david <laughs> before we finish oops no we've run out of time
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think um with your topic today we're going to probably uh, share your despair which is why i'm not sure we will have much debating uh mm. conversation but uh, you do feel despair at the decision of these pakistan authorities to ban malala's inspirational malala's book
4: Yeah, it really – after all, you, 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 you get this girl who becomes a major heroine to a large part of the world because she represents the desire of somebody for knowledge in a situation where some people want to stop it. And far from embracing her, a large section of the Pakistani political establishment and journalistic establishment turns on her and says, you know what? You're the problem. You're the person we don't like. You've been selling out to the foreigners. You've got yourself a degree of celebrity that ordinary Pakistanis can't even begin to dream of. So there's a kind of mixture of envy, dislike, a sort of misplaced patriotism, and also old-fashioned misogyny all mixed in. And you look at this combination and you think, what is the long-term way out of it? If you can't even embrace a cat person like this and say, yes, you know, we don't have to agree with everything that she says, but there are lots of useful things that we can do here but instead you turn on her then what hope is there for a society like that Never
2: underestimate. I mean, I think it's I agree with you. It's terrible. But never underestimate that kind of defensive national pride, especially in emerging countries. You know, people do not like to feel that the rest of the world is pointing at them and saying, no, 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 you bad. Malala, good. You know, even in Britain, you know, we we tend to sort of close ranks of it. We say, well, best television in the world. And we're we're, we're proud of our armed forces. (laughs) And and, God God save the Queen and so on. We don't like other people criticizing us. Pakistan. Feels well not you. Uh,
1: be quiet Republican
2: tendency in the corner. Listen, Philip Collins was named after the Duke of Edinburgh. Oh, can't he can't, he, he's he's is. never got over,
0: it.
1: He's got over it.
2: Seriously, we I mean we, we have this this kind of, of knee-jerk pride. Imagine how much more you have if you're Pakistan. And I think it's quite important when things like this happen that the rest of the world doesn't seem to be pointing the finger at bad country, failing country. You know, because they will then kick back and things like this ridiculous Malala ban will happen.
3: The, the Phil position, Collins. position of women all over that region is a really serious problem. I remember the Millennium Development Goals. If you look at the, those, we're miles off achieving them, but I think seven out of the 12 required the emancipation of women before they were even feasible. They were actually goals that were focused on women. And all across that region, you're finding that that's a very, very distant goal. Remember, Marcha Mar- Mar- Sen's brilliant work on India and the, the number of women who were never born through mm. sex selection and, and, uh, were, were, were light of a million women yeah. in India. And, and so it's all across the region. We're, we're, a, we're a century behind the way we tend to conduct these arguments in, in Britain.
1: Well, thank you very much. That is all we have time for in uh, this week's uh, podcast. I want to thank uh, Phil Collins and David Aronovich for joining me again, and particularly Libby Purvis, her first Times Opinion podcast. Will you come back, Libby?
2: Yes, I'm not used to broadcasting, obviously. It's very (laughs) Being around microphones is really, really frightening and and unnerving for me. But yeah, okay.
1: Good. And, (laughs) well, it's been great to have you. And also thanks to David Maguire, my uh, producer, for holding the show uh, together. Some of the articles that we've been discussing today, Times subscribers can access them at thetimes.co.uk slash comment central. Do subscribe to the Did You Read podcast via iTunes. Thank you for listening and see you next week.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
4: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.